this was a time where I had a rough career transition. And I looked at my stock portfolio with a third of my money in real estate, the way I was doing it then. It was making twice as much. And I was like, oh my God, what have I been doing all of this time? You've probably stayed in an Airbnb before, but have you ever thought about owning one? We wrote off single family rentals a while ago, and we were wrong. Real estate is not a one size fits all investment. And today's guest, Parambala, is an expert in all things single family rentals. She's proof that you can ditch the rat race and take back control of your life, one single family rental at a time. Are you ready to find out how you can generate over six figures from a single family rental portfolio? Let's get into it. I am a physician based out of uh, Southern California, Bakersfield uh, to be specific. And uh, I hit financial freedom using real estate uh, at the age of 41, after which I cut back, you know, I quit my full-time position. I work part-time in medicine now because I had little kids and I wanted to spend more time with them. After I did that, I, uh, you know, I was really passionate about talking about financial freedom through real estate because I, you know, went through a period of burnout, lack of autonomy in medicine and financial freedom really helped with all of those things. It was a security I needed. I wanted to talk about it. I built a community uh, of physicians who kind of wanted the same freedoms and uh, it grew. We're at 10,000 physicians at this point. It's called Generational Wealth MD. And then I started coaching physicians, helping them build their own real estate portfolios. As I was doing that, I realized that the majority of people in the community wanted to invest passively in real estate. Um, you know, at least, you know, at some part of their portfolio, they wanted passive investments. And then um, we created GW Capital, which is a syndication loan where we co-GP on um, multifamily apartments and bring those opportunities to our community. And we're at uh, $150 million in assets under management at this point, and we're just getting started. Um, so yeah, that's that's what I've been doing. And uh, I guess I, I, I always like to mention this. My new why is... Um, is having impact and uh, we have a nonprofit where we help children with disabilities in rural India and a big part of what we uh, what we make goes towards uh, towards that cause. So, yep, that's that's the wrap. You mentioned your, your background is in medicine and in the past you've referred to mistakes that you made when you were beginning your investment journey that you see a lot of other people in the medical field, but I'm sure people in general make them in, in regards to how they approach their wealth and building wealth and investing. So can you explain what the traditional retirement model followed by physicians and most people is and what they get wrong. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I made this mistake for a decade, right? I thought about investing. I, so I finished my training in 2010, which was like the perfect time to get started investing, right? It's like, you know, uh, property prices were low, uh, really cash flowing properties. But I looked at real estate at that point. Again, I took a few years to get started. All the limiting beliefs that hold most of us back. You know, I don't have the time. I don't have the money. Is this really even worth it? And then 2014, I purchased my first property uh, and I looked at the cash flow from it. And I was like, well, it's a few hundred bucks. It was like 500 bucks at that point per property. And I was like, how is this ever going to get me to financial freedom? And so I just put it on the back burner. And then fast forward six years, I look at that property and I built up so much equity in the property and it was cash flowing more because real estate serves as an inflation hedge, right? So your biggest ticket expense, your mortgage stays the same, but over time your rent start increasing and you start cash flowing more. So then I looked at that property and I was like, um, this was this was a time when I had a rough career transition and I was like really looking at financial freedom. And I looked at my stock portfolio, I looked at real estate and with a third of my money in real estate, the way I was doing it then, and I didn't know any better, I was just buying turnkey properties and just renting them out. Uh, I was making, with a third of my money, I was making twice as much in real estate. And I was like, oh my God, what have I been doing all of this time? that's when I realized that I needed to really accelerate it. And so even then my initial plan was, oh, I'm going to accelerate it the way I know to do it, just like buy turnkey rentals. And as I started deep diving and learning more, I realized that there was so much more you could do with real estate, like forcing appreciation. This is what you guys do also, Carvin, right? So you go and you add value and you rapidly increase a property's uh, value without having to wait 
you know, years for the price to increase in the market. And, and then there are also additional tax savings that you can get, even if you're working full time, you know, uh, in medicine or in any other profession, uh, where a lot of people like a lot of our members now shelter up to half a million dollars of income from taxes. So, so many ways where you're increasing your returns with real estate. And it's, it's almost foolish to just look at, you know, the, the cash flow part alone and say, oh, well, this isn't really going to make, you know, it's not, it's not going to have impact. So I think the biggest thing that a lot of people, professionals, you know, anyone who makes money, right? I say anyone who, if you're making money, you need to be an investor also, because, you know, saving is never going to get you anywhere, is not really understanding the impact that returns can have on on your journey to financial freedom. And so oftentimes, uh, you just, you know, you think about the traditional retirement models, investing in your retirement accounts, you put it in their investment index funds, and you kind of accept that 10% return as, you know, it's like the holy grail, right? Uh, You don't realize that, if you stepped outside the box and you know real estate is considered an alternative asset but it's it's actually significantly lower risk when you know what you're doing right that's a way to you know, really de-risk your portfolio and you can get significantly higher returns that can be you know for a turnkey rental it could be 20 percent annualized returns once you factor in um, debt pay down that's happening when you pay down your mortgage over time um, appreciation uh, you know just market appreciation because you have a leveraged property go all the way up to 100 to 200 percent in year one once you start tapping into those advanced tax strategies and adding you know forcing appreciation and getting into other things like short-term and mid-term rentals where your returns are significantly higher just from cash flow right so it's this whole spectrum and throughout the spectrum there are ways where you can de-risk your portfolio but your risk is significantly lower and your returns are so high that you can get to financial freedom within three to five years using real estate as opposed to going down the traditional path and saying okay next 20 years from now i'm going to be financially free and then i'm going to have my autonomy that then i'm going to have control over my time and income um and so so that's i think the, the biggest thing that people don't think about it's not you don't think about it as a game of returns where that that's essentially what it is you know and so breaking out of that box and and looking at options i think uh, that's what the community's been about that's the education part which is what we're, we're doing I love how you kind of make you frame it as adopting the mindset of an investor. If you, I believe you coined this, so thanks for coining this. But the four different four real estate personas, and I was really happy that you broke it down that way because most people don't even think in the way that an, an investor does. But going beyond that, there's different types of investors. So can you expand on what those four personas are and which one you saw yourself as throughout your journey? Yeah, that's that's great. And so I actually. I'm writing an ebook now for uh, passive investors and syndications. And I, I look at that also as like, you know, three different things, but let's talk about overall, right? If you're talking about direct ownership, um, I, I broke it down because when I tried to explain to people, there was a spectrum of risk reward and a spectrum of uh, effort reward. It's kind of hard for people to understand that completely. So I like to think of investors as three different categories, right? So you have the person who's just a typical investor who uh, who either wants to invest passively in syndications or wants to go and buy a turnkey rental, just, you know, buy something that you can rent out right away. You put an, a, um, a renter in there and you're making steady, you know, cash flow. It's appreciate, appreciating over time as market prices increase with a single family, right? So you have someone who's just an investor. You're will, willing to build that legacy wealth and you're willing to wait 10 years, 50, you know, you would take, it would still take half the time to do it if you were investing in syndications and um, turnkey rentals as it would say in the traditional stock market. So I've actually run these numbers, right? If it took you 18 years in the stock market, it would take you eight years just being an investor in real estate, right? So you could just do that slow and steady over time, um, let your portfolio grow and get to financial freedom 
in less than half the time it would take you with a traditional retirement model. So that's, that's you know, that's one kind of person. And then this other person, which is where, like, I started off as an investor, right? And when I described what I did, I was the typical investor, like, just buy it, let it stay, and then, you know, it'll make me money. But then I realized that there was a point where, you know, this merger at work and it was rough and I wanted to really get to the point of financial freedom faster. And I decided for me that I wanted to, to I was willing to hustle. So I was working full time, raising two young kids during the pandemic, which is when we lost childcare and, you know, kids were home and stuff. But that's when I started doing rehabs, you know, and increasing the value of those properties rapidly. So I started forcing appreciation and I used to run my teams myself. I didn't have a general contractor source the materials. And I did that because then I could tap into those advanced tax savings also while forcing appreciation. So like stacking on a bunch of things. And I did that for a few years and I hit financial freedom. And now I'm like back to, you know, 15 minutes a month on my portfolio, right? So there, I call that the short-term hustler, the person who's willing to really hustle it out for a little bit, but then knowing that after after you've done that, after you've done the value add, you can just let that property sit. You've increased your rents, you've increased the property's value and you know your returns are higher, but then you just let it ride out, right? So you do a short-term hustle. So that's, I call them the short-term hustlers. And then we have a lot of people in our community who are what I call the entrepreneurs, right? They want to go in, they want to maximize those tax savings right away. They want to like get su super high cash flow. So 30 to 40% year one. And uh, they are willing to invest in say short-term rentals, right? Um, so I, I call short-term rentals its own beast because it's a business. It's like running a business. And that's why you get those tax benefits, right? Even when you're working full-time, you can tap into the tax savings because you're running an active business when you're managing it yourself. And so there are people willing to go ahead and do that, um, buy a short-term rental, stay on top of marketing, optimize their... Uh, occupancy, uh, you know, and then even after it's stabilized, you need to stay on top of and make sure your systems are appropriate. You're, you need to pivot with any shifts in the market, um, stay on top of all the, the platforms like Airbnb and all the changes that are coming. So that's like running a business. But if you have that mindset and if you're willing to pivot when you need to and keep running that as a business, you get significantly higher returns, right? So that's this whole spectrum where the investor gets lower returns, they put less time in and they're willing to do that. And then the entrepreneur is someone who's willing to give it their time and attention just because they're going to get significantly higher returns. So starting from 20% as an investor, say you're getting 40% annualized returns as um, the short-term hustler, and then you get you can get you know 70 to 100% annualized returns on your portfolio as, uh, as an entrepreneur. You kind of really need to see where you want to be on that spectrum. And you know it's, it's always a trade-off between how much time you're willing to put in and, and the returns that you're getting for it. Absolutely. I'm really glad you broke that down. And I mean, this is a question that just really popped up, but does risk vary o over those different personas as well? I think so. Um, and I always say that, you know, there's a way in each of those categories to reduce your risk, right? Even as a short-term renter. Uh, and, you know, the one thing I didn't mention was midterm rentals. And I, I put that in the same bucket as a hustler because you go in, you kind of set your systems up. But once you do, it isn't as much work as running a short-term rental. But we have people who take a single family home that's, say, $400,000 that you could get $2,500 if you rented it out as a long-term rental. And they're getting seven to $10,000 a month running that as a midterm rental. But you put the systems in place and it's, it's less effort. So I say rehabs and midterm rentals, I would call them, put them in the short-term hustle bucket. And so uh, the risk does vary. So with short-term rentals, I feel like, you know, even within real estate, it's on the spectrum where there's more risk because regulations can change at any point, you know, uh, platforms can change. It's more susceptible to macroeconomic trends. So if you have a recession, we can see, and, you know, historically we've seen this where there has been a drop of about 10% um, in revenue uh, when, uh, when you, you go into a recession uh, with short-term rentals and you need to underwrite for that. Right. And so, 
so the the risk reward spectrum is different. So short term rentals do inherently have more risk. There are ways to de-risk that. You do that through education, and um, there are ways where you can um, you know reduce your risk by picking the right market, picking um, underwriting more aggressively, stress testing your deal more aggressively, and then having all the systems in place to automate and optimize, and then constantly staying on top of it. There are ways to de-risk that short term rental, but it inherently does have more risk. And it's the same thing for rehabs, and and, and you know this even as a syndicator who's going in and, and value adding, you really need to know what your after repair value is going to be, right? Once you've done that in that market, what, you know, how much can you command uh, in terms of rents and what that after repair value is going to be? You have to be very intentional about setting that budget, having a contingency because timeframes can shift. This happened during the pandemic, right? So there is inherently more risk when you have those strategies. You can obviously build a buffer, educate yourself and really lower that risk. But I think there is a spectrum as far as risk and reward is concerned. And mm-hmm. uh, and being intentional about that is important from day one. Yeah, no, I'm so I'm really grateful you broke that down. And I'm also glad that you've already mentioned the short term, midterm and long term rental side of things, because I think you know on this podcast, I'm often bringing on multifamily investors who talk about big deals. But even us, we came from a single family investing background. And when we jumped into the multifamily space, we we were honestly, we wrote off single family investing as if multifamily was an objectively overwhelmingly superior strategy. But we've come to realize that's not necessarily the case. And in a lot of times, single family can make just as much sense, if not more sense for an investor. Um, so that is my 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 smooth way of pivoting into the short term, midterm and long term rental topic. Can you explain why, in general, those types of rentals may be a good option for someone maybe over multifamily? Yeah. And you know, that's, you bring up a great point, Carvin, and, and everyone's going to have a, a take on this, but I agree with you. I, you know, I really think that one size doesn't fit all when it comes to real estate. Right. And so typically what we do is we see a mentor or someone we know who's doing something and you just start following that model. But like you and I have been talking about, I think there's a whole spectrum of uh, risk return and then the spectrum of, um, you know, effort return as far as real estate is concerned. And you really need to see where you are on that spectrum, especially when it comes to single family homes. Uh, I think there are two kinds of investors. You know, you have th- those who have a small and mighty portfolio and they can take that. I mean, you could take a portfolio of just two midterm or short-term rentals and generate six figures in passive income just from that. That could be your goal and you're done. And all you want to do is manage those two, you know, have your systems in place and manage those two properties. And then you have people who have, you know, who direct have direct ownership of 150 units. And that's that's a whole different ballgame. And I don't think there's a right or wrong answer. I think it depends on what makes sense for you, uh, you know, with the teams that you have in place, the market that you're in. If you don't want to go out of state, what can you do locally? A lot of different questions come into play. There is economy of scale when you go into, you know, multifamily where you can bring in on-site property managers and they can take care of everything. But I've seen people do it successfully both ways. And so I think it depends on what really makes sense for you as an investor, what you have to build on. And I don't think it's necessarily true that, you know, you have to pivot into larger assets for it to make sense. Uh, people can do have as, you know, five long-term rentals that are paid out and they could live off of that comfortably and travel the world and they can have two midterm rentals that are generating just as much cash flow and they could have 150 units, say, in the Midwest where they get the same revenue from it. And so it depends on what your goals are and what makes the most sense for you. Absolutely. And with that, let's dive into the rental side of things. Starting off with short-term rentals, can you just define what a short-term rental is? Yeah, so um, a short-term rental is typically what I think what 
we've been calling um, Airbnb or vacation rentals, right? Um, so, and the tax code defines this a little differently. So we'll just stick with what the tax code says. So as long as you have a place that you're renting it for on average less than seven days, um, uh, you know, the stays, the duration of the stays is less than seven days um, in that calendar year, then it's considered a short-term rental uh, by, according to the IRS. Now, uh, it could be something that you're renting out for 30 days and you're providing substantial services like, uh, like you know, hotels would. You pro provide laundry, breakfast services, all of that. That's a different category. But for most people, for most people, you're not providing all of that. So it's like average stay, guest stay of less than seven days is what uh, the IRS considers a short-term rental. And so when you get into that category, agree uh what happens is that it's considered a business and as long as you are self-managing it and you're materially participating in that business which means you're spending more time than anyone else in the business uh, or there, there are a few criteria for that but i think the ones that most people end up using is 100 hours on that business and more time spent on the business than anybody else even if you're working a full-time job they allow you to consider that a business where you could then bonus to appreciate that asset. So you could take the real estate and get massive losses. You're one that you can use to offset your W2 or 1099 income, right? So it's its, it's own little beast um, that, uh, you know, gives you higher cash flow just because of inherently, you know, when you're pricing it out and you have an average daily rate of say $200, $300 and you have an occupancy of 60, 70%, every month on that property, you're generating three to four times what you would if you were to run that as a long-term rental, right? And I think with the pandemic, a lot of us have, um, have pivoted how we travel and uh, Airbnbs and, you know, short-term rentals are here to stay. And so it's definitely something that has uh, taken on more meaning since the tax code changed and allowed people to get those tax benefits, but also since the pandemic and after 2015, you just, you know, with the internet and everyone having access to all of these properties, um, it's it's here to stay. And it's a place where investors can get significantly higher returns from cash flow and can also tap into those, um, those you know, advanced tax strategies. Uh, that's as far as short-term rentals. Uh, the the, the midterm rentals um, are, again, um, a, a different animal. Midterm rentals are where your you know your stay you, uh, your guest stay is it's typically I would say a one to six months, right? So it's not your long-term rentals here for greater than six months. Um, that could be traveling nurses. It could be people who are traveling for businesses, people who are traveling to stay close to a hospital, you know, to help take care of some uh, of a loved one. Um, and then there's this unique category in midterm rentals where if there's a family that has been displaced from their home because of a fire or water damage and the insurance company is placing them, then you have now have these people who, who need uh, places to stay for say one to six months and those stays could extend longer um, and they are willing to they need some a place that is furnished and they're willing to pay significantly higher um, especially when you talk about those families that are displaced because of uh, you know because, because of damage to the home and the insurance company is paying for those stays uh, this is where you can you again you need a furnished um, rental where the utilities are taken care of by the uh, by the by the owner which is different from a long-term rental but you can take you know the, like I mentioned before a $400,000 home where $2,500 is what you could rent it out as a unfurnished long-term rental. You could take that and someone could pay, like a traveling nurse could pay $4,500, $5,000 for that property. But if the insurance company is paying to relocate a family, they can pay seven to 10 grand um, and even higher for that for that property. So again, you're increasing your cash flow significantly. Now, when you go into that realm, you obviously aren't able to tap into the short-term rental tax savings that you could just because of the duration of stay. But you now have a model where you don't have to worry about all that turnover, your effort on the property is lower. And once you've built your systems out, you're getting that significantly higher cash flow. And that could make a lot of sense, especially I think 
uh, Carmen, in the current market where it's kind of hard to find with the way interest rates are and home prices having shot up, low inventory. There's still, you know, yeah, home prices really haven't reset and there's, there's a lot of competition. Finding a long-term rental that's turnkey where you just rent it out and want some cash flow, that's really hard to to, to, to see in this market. And so I've seen a lot of members within our community are pivoting to the short-term and mid-term rental strategies because they want that cash flow and they really want to kind of accelerate their path to freedom. But if they don't want to go in and do like a, a, a rehab and increase the value of the property, this is another way where they're pivoting. Um, or they're stacking on both things, right? Buy something, rehab it, then furnish it, and then, you know, get the benefit on, on both ends. But but yeah, it's definitely something that's uh, that a lot of people have been tapping into in, in the current market. Yeah, I remember there was a whole short term rental craze right around COVID. It kind of seems when it spiked, but and and I do want to dive it, do a deep dive into each type of rental that we're discussing today. But specifically, let's uh, back it up a little bit to the short term rentals. And I'm sure there's a lot that goes into identifying uh, uh, and making a successful short term rental. And I was hoping you could just provide uh, an overview of the key factors that go from making a short term rental. Uh, a successful one as apart from just one that's average in terms of maybe location or the property itself? Uh, let's start from the top, right? I think market is, market selection is going to be really, really key. Uh, as far as short-term rentals are concerned, you have the drive-to markets where people can just drive to them. That's like, uh, you know, the mountain destinations, the Smokies, Blue Ridge uh, in Atlanta, uh, the Florida beaches, the Panhandle, right? Um, and so, um, you know, you have drive-to destinations, you have flight-to destinations where, like, say, Hawaii or uh, Disney World, people are flying to those locations, right? And then you have the metro markets where you can run a short-term rental in Bakersfield. There aren't any ordinances. You could do it in well, Dallas has just changed the regulations, but say Atlanta or Houston, there are parts where you could run a short-term rental over there. So they're metro markets. And so all of those markets perform very differently and have give you very different exit strategies, right? So selecting the market is going to be super important. Drive to destinations typically tend to be more re recession resilient as opposed to the flight to destinations. Same thing with metro markets. You have the ability to pivot to the midterm rental or long-term rental more effectively in those metro markets. And so, you know, so when you're picking a market, I think that's the first thing that you would be really Really, really intentional about it. Um, again, markets that are further down south have a higher occupancy. And so seasonality is another thing in picking that market, because uh, if you have a property that does, you know, a market that does well, say, during the summer, but then the rest of the year it's dead, and you aren't breaking even, then you've picked the wrong market, right? So occupancy and picking the right market is going to be obviously critical. Um, you want to also be, regulations are constantly changing as far as short-term rentals are concerned. So you want to be in a place where regulations are already established, the economy thrives on tourism and, uh, you know, people visiting the place. Um, and so, you know, you, that, again, it's going to be key, understanding regulations that are even in the pipeline, right? You want to make sure you understand that. Um, Stress testing, uh, you you know, Carvin, you know this, um, we're stress testing all of our deals that we're getting into in multifamily. It's the same thing with short-term rentals right now. If you go into a period where we go in a period of recession, people aren't spending as much, you want to really make sure your underwriting is, is strong. Um, for those of for your listeners, we have a short-term rental calculator that we just upgraded. It's on the website, generationalwealthmd.com in the resources section. I always say, um, grab your data from RDNA, right? But also stress test those numbers for ADR and occupancy, drop them by 10% each to make sure that even if numbers fall, you're still able to, you know, um, to weather any, uh, any changes in occupancy and ADR. So stress testing it. And then I think, you know, picking a property with a great view, uh, picking a property that's unique, all of that is going to be really important because in some markets we are seeing saturation. There are so many people who want to go in there and you really need to stand out. So being unique, um, really taking the time to make sure your pictures look great, that you have every amenity that, you know, a guest over there wants to have. And then 
really knowing what your ideal client avatar is and marketing to those people, making sure it's, it's, you know, it's what they need. All of that's going to be really important. I mean, I could talk about this for hours, but then getting the, getting the reviews, making sure that your online presence is great, making sure that, you know, your listing is on the first few pages. All of those things are going to be really important because you kind of have to run it as a business. So you have to be able to market the property effectively, you know, get people convert, get people to see it, um, get all those reviews and then provide the services that you're providing um, and stay on top of it because it's an evolving, um, you know, um, environment and make sure you're pivoting as you need to. But all of those things are going to be critical. But I think as you're thinking about acquiring, the most important things are going to be picking the right market based on occupancy, you know, how that, you know, what the seasons are, seasonality and regulations. Yeah, no, I'm so glad you, you mentioned the changing environment. That's something that's been a recurring theme on a lot of the episodes and interviews that I've recently been doing that aren't out yet, but they'll be out soon. And I was curious as to how this changing environment has impacted the short-term rental space. Uh, what are some emerging trends or challenges that investors in that space are encountering and what are they doing to overcome them? Yeah. And so I think overall, the first thing we need to remember is, so I guess the biggest concern is always going to be what happens when we go into period of recession, right? And so this is where I want to remind people that the data and historic data is based on how the hospitality industry did during the last four recessions, right? Um, you could have a, you know, a period where of, so on average, it's been about a year, re revenue drops by 10%. So you need to underwrite for that and make sure you're willing to, uh, you're, you know, you're able to sustain that essentially, right? So going in with that data, looking at, and so AirDNA does a great job at putting out how, um, you know, what occupancies look like, what ADRs look like, what RevPAR has been, um, you know, year on year. And um, in the last year, I know a lot of people have been talking about Airbnb bust. We haven't really seen that in the key markets, right? Um, so um, because ADR has been keeping up and, you know, occupancy has dropped a little bit and for multiple reasons, a lot of it having to do with saturation in some markets, but ADR has been able, the average daily rates have gone up just because of inflation um, and um, people have been able to maintain the same revenue, right? And so we're not talking about, the goal is not to maintain revenue at the peak that we had in 2021, 2022, but compared to pre-pandemic levels, we're still doing really, really well. And that's, I think that's what, that's the data we like to look at, like to see how the sector is doing. And like I mentioned, just because of the way people traveling having changed, we don't anticipate that to shift drastically going forward, right? So that's the first thing in terms of, okay, so what's happening with the short-term rental industry? Regulations are changing. Like we just talked about this, Dallas has um, enforced new regulations where you can't run short-term rentals in a residential area that isn't zoned for multifamily, right? So, and that's going to happen. And that's why, like I said, market selection is going to be very important. If you're getting into those metro markets, you have to realize that regulations can change at any point because those are residential areas. They're not built for tourism, right? And so this is why we emphasize picking a market that makes sense. And if you're picking a metro market, know what your exit strategies are going to be, right? You can always run midterm rentals in those markets. You have a furnished property, run it as a midterm rental. So that's where you build those systems, right? And that's why it's important to kind of know how you're pivoting and you could run it as a long-term rental. Furnished long-term rentals also get higher rents, right? So making sure you're able to pivot if regulations change. And again, that's going to be very market dependent. So really understanding your market going in. But then the other thing is going to be about saturation, right? It is true that in the last three years, we have more short-term rentals in in most markets, especially the really hot markets than we did before. And so how are you going to uh, to deal with that? And that's where we talk about, you know, when we when we talk about short-term rentals, it's not just about acquiring a property and listing it and then running it effectively the first few months where you're 
Airbnb gives you a boost. It's about having a unique property, really marketing it appropriately online, really um, enhancing that guest experience. So you have the review, so you have the super host status. And then there are a ton of things that you can do. And it's not really about, okay, if I drop my prices, I'm going to keep my occupancy up. It's about how do you keep your occupancy while still maintaining your, your prices. And so that has a lot to do with, uh, you know, uh, cleaning fees. What are your cancellation policies? You know, are you pet friendly? So many other things that you can do to make sure that you're staying in those top few pages on the uh, the platforms, are you building out your own direct booking site so you have more control over your base? You know, um, how are you marketing that's not on the traditional Airbnb, VRBO platforms? So many things that you can do. Where even if such even though saturation is an issue, you're standing out and you're really effectively running it as a business and you're staying on top of all of that competition, which is why I said you kind of have to be an entrepreneur to run short-term rentals. So yes, there are changes um, as far as regulations, as far as saturation, but when you know what you're doing, people are still crushing it with short-term rentals. But again, not everyone can do it. So you really need to have those systems in place. You keep saying that you have to be like an entrepreneur to be in the short-term rental space. I'm wondering if you have to be involved in order to be able to write it off. This is my understanding. So correct me if I'm wrong. Is it hard to scale the single, uh, the short-term rental, a short-term rental business if you have to have a certain involvement in order to qualify? So, um, so it depends, right? So there are multiple ways where you can qualify for the short-term rental, and so that's where material participation comes into play, right? So there are three, I would say there are seven rules for material participation. There are three that most people end up using. So if you're spending, the majority of time spent by anyone on that property is you, like greater than 90% is you, then you automatically qualify, but you're going to have cleaners in there. So that's not a rule that most people can qualify for. The second one's going to be if you're working full-time and you're spending a hundred hours on your short-term rental in a given year and that, and more than anybody else. So that's usually very easy to do in the first year because you're acquiring the property, you're setting it up, you're going maybe visiting it once, um, you're setting up your cleaners, handyman, you know, you've spoken to your lender all of the time that you spend into acquisition. It's really easy to do year one. So definitely that's the year you would really want to be able to do it if you can. But suppose you're scaling and you have five properties um, and now, and this is a lot of our members do this. Now you have a VA, you have a co-host, you have cleaners coming in, you have this larger portfolio. Are you still going to be able to tap into it? And so you can be very intentional where you're one, you're probably self-managing that property and hitting that hundred hours and more than anyone else. And so, yes, you can totally do it. But if you're at the stage where you have, and some of our members have like nine short-term rentals that they're managing, they have two VAs doing it. You can still meet the criteria by hitting the third rule, which is 500 hours in a given calendar year on your portfolio, and you can group all those short-term rentals into one. So when you use the grouping election, um, and for, for most of our, and so again, you want to be really intentional. If you're setting up a short-term rental or you acquired two properties that year and over your entire portfolio, you've spent 500 hours that you're on that portfolio, that's very doable. Um, and, um, and sometimes it may mean taking on a little more than you want to, even though you have the systems, just because you want to kind of, you know, really be active in your portfolio that year. And then again, a, a few years later, if you're not acquiring and you have your systems in place, you don't really need to hit material participation every year. It's just in the year that you want to take the tax break or in the year that you're acquiring. So there are ways around it. And, you know, um, there are ways you can be intentional about it where you're really active for the years you're taking the tax breaks. But I think I like, like to say this, Carbon, and so this is true for the hustler. It's true for the entrepreneur. You can be really active in one year and, you know, because um, it's, the IRS goes by calendar year. And then say a year later, if you want to be super passive and you want to have a property manager or a VA manager, everything you could. And, and that's the beauty of real estate. It's very fluid, right? So you could 
one year to say, okay, I'm, you know, I want to shelter my income and I'm going to, you know, be active in the following year, say, I'm going to just hand this off to a property manager. It doesn't matter. You've already taken, you know, you've gotten your tax, uh, tax break in the year that you were active. So it's all about strategy. It's all about what makes sense to you. And like I said, again, it's a game of, um, uh, effort reward, right? So you put in the effort, you get the, the tax savings that bumps up your returns. But if you want to sit back, you can absolutely do that and hand it off. You just, you know, you're, you're trading off the returns for it. And so th- that, that kind of ties me into the next topic, which would be the midterm rentals, because you mentioned there's differences, key differences, such as I'm, I imagine property type will be different, but you also mentioned the resident demographic that you're appealing to. Can you expand on some of those key differences? What, what about the property would be different if for a midterm rental that maybe wouldn't make sense in a short-term rental or vice versa? And also, can you expand on the different uh, pool of, of renters that you're aiming to market to? Yeah. So, um, so like we said before, right? I mean, a short-term rental, some of our members who have short-term rentals in off season like to do midterm rentals. So you could do it. So the biggest thing is going to be the market, right? So you could do it in a vacation market. You could do a, a midterm rental. Typically you're doing that in off season because you're trying to rent it out to someone who's a, say a snowboard who wants to come and spend a few months over there and it's, you know, not during peak season. Um, so you could do that. And then if you're in a metro market, then like we talked about your your entire pool of people for the midterm rental is going to be traveling nurses. So that's when you're right next to a hospital, right? Or you have multiple um, healthcare facilities in that, in that location. Um, if it is a huge residential area, then it kind of makes sense to target those um, those those families who are displaced because of uh, you know, because of uh, damage to their property and the insurance is paying for it. So a lot a lot of it's going to depend on the market that your property is in, and which is why it's intentional. It's it's really good to be intentional about it before you even enter those markets. And then every market affords itself to different kinds of midterm rental, um, you know, um, guests. I would say uh, who come in there. And so, uh, but apart from that, you're essentially you know, it's a furnished rental. If it's a midterm rental, you don't, I, I don't believe you need to be as intentional about, you know, having the guest avatar and all of those other things we talked about in terms of optimizing a short-term rental um, from the perspective of having all the, the amenities that you require will, will obviously be very different, but having those amenities doesn't hurt. And so if you're doing a combination short-term midterm rental, that works really well. But a typical midterm rental, it could just be furnished as a, you know, a place that a family want to come and stay. It doesn't have to be super fancy. Um, you can get away with it. Um, and it just needs to be comfortable. Um, again, you don't need to have cleaners in there. Uh, that's, that's flexible. You may want to send cleaners in there or your tenants may want to take care of that themselves a lot of times they will be willing to take care more care of that property so your maintenance is is, is obviously goes down because they they care for the property like a long-term um, renter would so there's, there's a bit of a difference over there how you manage your calendar is going to be different because if you want to run midterm rentals you don't want to block out you know multiple short stays in between because that, that really does pull you out of that pool for the midterm um, guest who wants to stay there for three to six months. So how you're managing your calendar, um, all of that shifts. You don't have to be as intense about marketing and amenities as you would with a short-term rental, but it, you know it doesn't hurt. So there are some differences you can you can tone it down, and you could still do really really well with a midterm rental. Um, I think again it depends mostly on your the submarket you're in and and which kind of midterm rental guest you're targeting because there's again that that variability over there. Yeah, because I know personally, we've stayed in Airbnbs and short-term rentals. And um, in general, I mean, my understanding of the short-term rental, like you said, tourists and vacation, people are on vacation. So I imagine, like you said, they would probably take more better care. Uh, midterm renters will likely take yeah. more care of the property. And so are there any other property management differences between the midterm and short-term rental side of things? 
Oh yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah. Property management is going to be very different. So, you know, for long-term rentals, property management, you're looking at five to 10% is what they're charging for property management. And your revenue on the long-term rental side is also lower. So it's, it's actually very uh, clean trade-off uh, for the amount of time that you'd be spending on managing a long-term rental. And so most of our long-term uh, investors, long-term rental investors prefer to use property managers. Now, short-term rentals, uh, property management is a whole different beast because you could be paying anywhere from 15 to 30% of gross revenue, understanding that that revenue is going to be three to four times what you're making on long-term rentals, right? So that's huge. Um, and so that's where, you know, property management, a lot of people like to self-manage short-term rentals, or they like to bring in, um, say, a co-host or a VA, which are other ways where you can, you know, leverage those people and you aren't paying them as much. Now, midterm rentals is like in between, so it's kind of tricky. Yeah. Uh, if you're running a pure midterm rental model, A, it may be easier for you to self-manage significantly, you know, less time on it than if you were self-managing a short-term rental. But that's where you may be able to talk to some long-term, uh, you know, property managers, long-term rental property managers and say, hey, maybe around 15% uh, of, you know, whatever fee you want to give them, they're willing to take care of that property. And then that depends on whether your marketing and, um, you know, the marketing is is on you or if it's on them. Because again, that that's a very different way of, uh, it's very different from leasing a traditional long-term rental uh, space. So with the midterm rental, in the midterm rental space, it's not very well defined. It kind of depends on what you're able to negotiate. But most people who do property management for long-term rentals aren't comfortable doing it for short-term rentals. And then short-term rental property management is significantly more expensive. So what I'm hearing is for short-term rentals, it makes a lot of sense if you're close enough to the property to travel there. No. So let me rephrase that. Um, we have members uh, who are self-managing short-term rentals from across the country, right? Uh, so that's, that's that's key, right? So for none of this, and so I started off investing as an out-of-state investor. My first property was in Houston, Texas, while I was in Bakersfield, right? So, and then that barrier was broken down for me by my first mentor who lived in New Jersey, invested in Tennessee. So out-of-state investing was never hard for me getting in, and that's what we coach uh, in, in our community also. So most of our short-term rental owners own, like, out of state, like a five hour flight to even get there. But you need to have you need to have boots on the ground, which is going to be so self management just means having the right systems in place and having boots on the ground for a short term rental, having a good cleaner that you can trust and then having a handyman and I always say a backup handyman uh, is super important because, um, you know, and I'll just give you a story. I have one of my one on one clients, she purchased a short term rental uh, in Florida. And so she lived in Colorado. And so, you know, she was just starting out fresh. Uh, she had a guest who overstayed wouldn't leave. Now this is a guest this is not a tenant. So you don't have to go through an eviction process. And so the first panic call was Param, what do I do? I wish I were, I purchased something closer. I was like, Oh, this is exactly why you shouldn't purchase something closer because then you'll be running to the property trying to take care of this where this is not your job. You just need to have the systems in place. So, um, we called HOA, um, we made sure that they were aware of the situation and our handyman got there. The sheriff was called and the guest was escorted out of the property that's it done right this is not a reason and i think and I, i'll tell you this carvin my per, my personal portfolio is split between houston and uh, bakersfield and i spend more time on my bakersfield properties to the point where i know that out of state makes sense in so many ways because you are forced to build assistance uh for efficiency and so so you know you you're you're forced to have the right people in place and you can't take upon you know can't take any of those things upon yourself and so the same thing holds true for short-term rentals same thing for midterm rentals i have one of my um students she uh, lives in um la her midterm rentals are in Bakersfield. And then every time she comes up, she'll be like, hey, we'll hang out. I was like, okay, this we need to start hanging out less because I need you to build the systems where just because you can drive and it's an hour and a half away, I don't want you to be here. I want you to have people who can take care of it. And so that's, I think, a big part because then 
then you are, you know, a real estate investor who now has time to think about acquisitions and expanding your portfolio and strategy and education and somebody else is doing the lower level tasks. I think we've covered short term rentals and we discussed midterm rentals. I think the last one that I would really want to dive into is the third option, which is long term rentals. Are there specific advantages and disadvantages to choosing to focus on that investment model or rent uh, rental type over the other two? Um, yeah, so that's a great question, um, Corbin. So I, I bring it back to the, the original model, right, where we broke our investors into three categories, just the investors who are just like, you know, keep it passive, just, you know, you could have direct ownership of real estate and still have it super passive. Like I said, my long term rental sits 15 month, minutes a month on my portfolio, I keep it super passive, and, and they're direct ownership, right? So you can do that. Or you could be a hustler, which is still a long term rental, but you're going in and doing value add, right, um, where you're going in and increasing the value of the property, increasing the rents rapidly without waiting for market appreciation. So you're taking back control. But then one, when you're done with it, then you're done. And it just gives you an ability to kind of recycle the same pot of money over and over again. So even a long-term rental investor then technically could just be, you know, I'm just going to buy and hold and let, you know, rents go up organically, let mar market prices uh, go up organically, and I'm going to benefit from that and still get 20% average annualized returns. Or I can be a long-term rental who's going to go in, go in and do that rehab, increase the value of the property, increase the rents just because the property is now upgraded, and I'm getting like a 40 to 60% ROI in year one. And then I just let it ride out, you know, uh, once I've built that equity, once I, you know, taken the property to the next level. So then you're doing the short-term hustle over there. So it's still a you know, you still get to pick and choose even over there. Um, and I think that's where like the first step is always like, why, why are you doing it? And what is the trade-off like from a money perspective, from a time perspective, from a tax savings perspective, because if you are that passive long-term rental owner, then you're, you, you get tax efficiencies for sure, but you're not able to shelter your active income from taxes. Right. But mm -hmm. if you are the kind of person who invests in long-term rentals and say you work two or three days a week, you're part-time, but you're spending more time in real estate and you go Going and rehabbing when you rehab you increase your return significantly but you could also then tap into something called the real estate professional status where you're like you're that is the your primary business and you're spending more time on real estate than your other job now you can take the same long-term rental and you can bonus to appreciate that and then shelter your you know your active income from taxes if you wanted to so even with long-term rentals you have ways to boost those returns significantly and you could do that with single family you could do that with multifamily, whatever you want to right so there's it's still that spectrum even with long-term midterm or short-term but then short-term and midterm give you higher um, cash flow, even without doing a rehab over here, you could go with do a rehab and then, you know, boost your cash flow. So, so many different things to pick from. And so, and I think I, I like what you're doing is giving people the exposure to all of these opportunities across the spectrum. So you don't start off thinking, hey, this is the only way it gets done. There are like so many ways to do it. And then you pick the one that makes the most sense for you. And, and I think the most important thing is you pick what you have access to at this point, based on the team that you, you, you know, you, you can rely on based on your finances and how much time you have. And then as you start growing your portfolio, you have the ability to pivot at any point and pick, you know, because your resources that are available to you from a time and money perspective are going to shift over time. And then you pick something that makes, you know, more sense to you at that time. But the most important thing is understanding all the, the entire spectrum of options and then saying, okay, well, this makes sense for me. Um, so, right. So you could be like a passive investor today, tomorrow, you may be like, okay, I want to really hustle it out or, you know, or your spouse may say, I want, I'm, I love designing spaces. Let's just do this short-term rental thing. You can pivot at any point, but just, just be intentional about where you're starting. 100%. And it's not just, I think, uh, the resources you have available, but it's also when the market itself changes. 
and your ability to pivot and navigate it. And if you have more act, uh, more tools in your tool belt, then you can pivot to this other strategy. If this one isn't maybe doing so well right now, or if things are slowing down in this sector, then you can go and make money in real estate, no matter what's happening. So I think that's, that's yeah, yeah, you just, you just nailed it, Corbin. It's also about the cycle you're in because, you know, for people who wanted a certain return, uh, say 10% cash and cash day one, you're not going to get that with a turnkey rental in most strong markets today. So that's when you start pivoting and saying, okay, well, if that is my goal, I either change that goal and I'm okay with something that's less, or I change my strategy. And so this is a time where, you know, and we're seeing this even in the multifamily space, even as, you know, single family owners, people are pivoting to short-term and midterm rentals uh, or pivoting to value add, deeper value add, whatever you need to do to make those numbers make sense. Understanding the risks involved with all of those and then being willing to take that for the returns, but yeah, you're absolutely right. Your strategy pivots even with market cycles. And this brings up the topic of diversification. Diversification is something that some investors stand by and, and, and insist you have to diversify and others think it's important and essential to focus on one strategy. So when it comes to the different kinds of rental strategies that we've discussed today, the short-term, mid-term and long-term strategies, is it important to diversify or is it even smart to do that? Or do you encourage the, invest, the average or newer investor to focus on one strategy? So that's a great question. And I know there are two different camps, right? Because uh, I think as Warren Buffett says, when you know what you're doing, you don't need to diversify if you really, really know what you're doing, what you're good at, right? So um, I think I think for people who are starting out, uh, um, I will say that I think it's important to have some degree of diversification, right? So that could be diversification across markets. It could be because, you know, some markets like uh, are more prone to natural disasters. So at some point, and it may not be when you're starting out, but you need to have a plan for as you start scaling, you may want to diversify out a little bit as far as markets are concerned. And then also with strategies, if I see someone who has primarily short-term rentals in their portfolio, after a certain point, the first, the second one is okay. But I think after a certain point, I like to see some diversification over there. I mean, either in, in knowing their numbers and underwriting for those exit strategies, like underwriting for a midterm or long-term rental, or in actually going in and acquiring those assets. I just think a diversified portfolio, um, across those asset classes is just more recession um, resilient. And I, I think I think that, that that's important. Unless you really know what you're doing and you're really good at what you're doing uh, and you're, you're comfortable scaling it, um, I think for most people as they scale, some degree of diversification across markets and asset classes I think is important. I say the same thing um, even with uh, the sponsors that you work with, some degree of sponsor diversification also makes sense. Um, and uh, yeah. And, uh, it doesn't have to be like all across the place. You don't need to have short-term and long-term rentals. But when you are in those riskier, I would say if you're in emerging markets or markets where there, uh, you know, there are natural hazards, uh, or if you're in some of those riskier asset classes like short-term rentals, then I think add on, bring on some more diversification. But if you're doing, you know, something that's really low risk and you really know what you're doing, you may get away with not having that diversification. Oh, thank you so much, Corbin. This was so much fun. Um, so yeah, you can get in touch with me at um, our website, generationalwealthmd.com has tons of resources. We have free calculators in there for people who are just trying to run numbers. But I think one thing I want everyone listening to at least run is, um, you know, run their financial independence numbers. We actually have a retirement calculator Later, which says, okay, well, if I'm doing what I'm doing now, and this is what I'm getting in terms of returns, how long before I hit financial freedom? I think it's really important because that mindset shift is really important before people start pivoting and scaling. And so um, that's again available under the resources section on the website, generationalwealthmd.com. And uh, yeah, I think that's, that's the best way to get in touch with us.